Tim, I don't think I've ever been to the circus before. Mm, no, Shay, I don't think I've ever been to the circus either. Oh, we're missing out. I think we've missed out. I think there aren't any more UK touring circuses. Huh. Shay. Mm-hmm. I don't think we'll ever go to the circus. This episode of Tales from the Pig Shed is brought to you by Dr. Crumble's Applesauce Emporium. If you bring the pig, we'll bring the sauce. Hello. Hi. Welcome to the Pig Shed. We have tails, tea and bacon sandwiches. Bacon sandwiches? I haven't had any bacon sandwiches. (coughs) Shay. Sorry. Well, this is a podcast about Norwich. We're here to bring you two stories inspired by one of Norwich's historical blue plaques. One from Shay. And the other grown organically on our mate George's allotment, planted and watered by Tim. Today's plaque is a spectacle the likes of which has never been seen before. A magnificent magical menagerie, meant to move and mystify. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls of all ages, come one, come all to our amazing carnivore. Hold on to your hats as we tumble up Timber Hill to Pablo Frank's circus extraordinaire. Yes, that's right. Yep. Thank you, Tim. Yep, that's right. Today's plaque is located on All Saints Green and is dedicated to Pablo Frank. Pablo was born William Darby sometime around 1810. Uh, While we know something of Pablo the showman, we know very little about William Darby. He was born in Norwich Workhouse, one of seven children. His father was a butler, and he was apprenticed to a travelling show as a teenager. From this point on, his renown grew and grew. He started out as an acrobat and trampoline artist. Top title of the decade. And a highly skilled equestrian and circus rider. So much so that his performance on horseback is still said to be unsurpassed. He went on to become the first black British circus proprietor, and he ran the most successful circus in the country for 30 years throughout the period known as the Golden Age of Circusry. Circus... Is um, circusing? He was so famous, he's even referenced in a Beatles song, For the Benefit of Mr Kite. Now, we're a bit concerned about provoking the wrath of that terrifying beast known as copyright law, so we'll sing it to you, but using a different tune. Thank you for your patience. For the benefit of Mr Kite, there will be a show tonight. On trampolines the Hendersons will all be there later, Pablo Fanks Fair. What a show! Shay and I are available for bookings. I'm very sorry. The real Mr Kite was a circus clown and a contemporary of Pablo's who died leaving his wife and children with no source of income and Pablo put on a show to raise funds for the bereaved family. He was part of this fraternity that was dedicated to doing this kind of thing to support the relatives of deceased members. Kind of part Masonic sect, part trade union, part kids party. Tim, a man died. Oh, what are you doing? Look, I've made a balloon pig. Trevor! You killed him! Timothy, be quiet. Put the balloons down, sit still, and listen to this. Trevor. The day after the accident, Winnie Harridge loses her nerve. She is standing with the trapeze in her hand, waiting to swing out into space, as she does every night, when she finds her feet are frozen to the platform. The drop yawns below her, familiar and deep. Backstage at the circus, the air is brasher than usual, brimming with jokes and insults thick with tobacco smoke. 
Bottles are passed around with too much bravado. There is more touching than before. The troop are constantly laying their hands on one another as if to check that they are still there, still filling space. Winnie is the smallest acrobat, and the best. The proprietor calls her Big Win when he is pleased, and the flea when he isn't. No one has seen him today. No one has approached the red door of his caravan since this morning, when William stole inside to ask if this evening's show would go up as normal. He returned within a moment. It would. Far below, the clowns caper and dance, riling up the audience like dogs do to a bear. Wind breathes deep into her lungs. She has drunk too much. She will get it wrong. She has never got it wrong before, but tonight she knows. She knows if she jumps, she will not fly but fall. The audience is small for an evening show. A third of the stands is missing, leaving a gap, like a missing tooth in the jaws of the stadium. Even so, they make up for their reduced number in the volume of their catcalls and laughter. They must have heard about what happened at last night's show. Perhaps, in some secret part of them, they are hoping for more. It is one thing to watch a person defy death, another kind of thrill entirely to watch them meet it head on. Wind swallows and tries not to look at the gap in the stands where the broken struts and crushed seats have been cleared away. She tries not to think of the crash and creaking scream of wood collapsing, of helping the clowns to pull one stunned punter after another out of the wreckage, their relief expanding with every coughing body until they found the one person who was still. They drew straws. It was William who told the master that his wife had been the only casualty. Whispering in the dark of their sleeping quarters, he told her that the master had said nothing, nodded and turned away and waited for William to leave. William said, I only wish I'd thought to take off my makeup first. Now he and the other clowns are shouting up at her from the distant circle of the ring, daring her to jump with their mouths whilst their eyes dare her not to. Wind forces back a rising wall of panic. She thinks of her transitory life, full of colour and no sleep. She wonders why she does what she does, why any of them play with fire and heights and horses that might bolt at any moment. It must be a life worth dying for. The audience have reached a rapturous crescendo. The clowns cannot draw it out any further. She must jump within the next five seconds or break the spell. Wynne thinks of the master's fierce wife, quiet and grey, under the rubble. Six hundred people fell when the stands gave way and only one did not get up again. Well, she thinks to herself, with odds like that, I may as well jump. She jumps. The show goes on. Thank you, Shay. That was the true and very sad story of Pablo Fank's wife, Susanna, who was killed in an accident when the stage seating collapsed under the weight of the audience at a show in Leeds. 600 people fell through the seating and only she was killed. That's true. That's very bad luck, isn't it? It's terribly bad odds. It's really bad odds. Pablo must have been devastated, um, one can only assume. Mind Mm. you, he did remarry five months later to a 22-year-old circus rider named Elizabeth. Well, everyone has their own way of grieving, Shay. Yeah, not judging. Just saying. This accident actually occurred during a benefit concert that Pablo was holding for a clown called W.F. Wallet, who Pablo worked with. And there's a great story about Mr. Wallet, and it goes a bit like this. Um, You can find the full story online or in Wallet's autobiography. But um, basically, during a tour of Glasgow with Pablo's circus, Wallet hired an Irish impersonator and shaved his head and made him up in an attempt to make him appear to be Chinese. His skin was dyed, and this saddler made him a little pigtail, which was attached to his head with some twine. It sounds fairly unconvincing and entirely ridiculous, and it, and it is, really. 
Um, however, some real Chinese gentlemen attended the show one evening and afterwards they went backstage and they asked if they could speak with their fellow countrymen. And they were really excited to discover another Chinese person in Glasgow and they were keen to meet him. Um, obviously, Wallet refused. So the Chinese gentleman came back night after night demanding to see the performer until the continued denial of this made them fear that he was being kept against his will and forced to perform. <laughs> so they tried to take the circus to court in order to liberate their compatriot and at this point Wallet gave in and admitted that the Chinaman was in fact just some lad from Tipperary. <laughs> Bit un-PC by today's standards. Oh indeed, by any day's standards. Other Victorian circus legends and all-round general mischievous characters, the two clowns Dickie Usher and Tom Barry, once rode down the Thames in a washtub that was drawn by four geese. <laughs> it lends a new gloss to commuting, I suppose. It does, yeah. Um, <laughs> hey, we should get some geese. Yeah, better than the central line. Another popular Victorian clown was Whimsical Walker. Famous for his animal acts, he taught his donkey Tom to sing to the accompaniment of of, uh, bagpipes or trombones or a violin. Um, He had to keep changing the instrument because Tom, the donkey, got bored and would refuse to sing to the same instrument (laughs) (laughs) for any long period of time. It does make me sad in a way that you can't go to circus shows like like it used to be these days obviously there are still touring shows um but it's not quite the same for various reasons is it no it's not well the decline came rather swiftly after pablo's death um after this day be it connected or not the golden age of circus came to an end shows dwindled and most companies moved overseas or just disbanded that's sad Mm, some people think it's sad others say it's for the best probably for reasons such as those outlined in the story about the Chinaman from Tipperary, (laughs) but also because of changing views on keeping animals in captivity and things like that. Anyway, sad or no, there is certainly a kind of circus magic missing from our lives nowadays. Don't you agree? I do. And on that note, here's this. The sky is always grey. Except when I'm at school, then it's blue and the sun shines like mad, but there's no point because I'm inside. The ground is always grey too if you're in town. If you go outside town, then sometimes it turns green. A lot of the time, it's just brown, though, and that's almost as boring as grey. The trees are green outside of town, or or in the parks inside town, but there they still smell like town. The trees are better outside. The further out you get, generally, the better things smell. Unless you end up next to a farm with cows or something, then everything kind of smells of poo. That's not that bad, though. Poo. People who get fussy about it are just stupid. My name's Jamie. I live right in the middle of town, but I ride my bike a lot, so I get out to the green quite a lot too. This one time, I cycled out way further than I was supposed to, but it was okay because my mum thought I was over at Cassie's flat for tea. I was riding down loads of little paths. They were all brown, but they had roots sticking out of them like snakes, so that made them less boring. Then I turned left, and I was in a field, one without cows or or any cow poo. I was going downhill and really fast, and that made all of the green blurry, which was brilliant. There was this little stream at the end of the field behind the fence, but the fence was broken, and the stream was only little, and there was a bump right before, so I knew I could jump it. It's weird though, because even though I knew I'd make it, I braked right beforehand. That's why I, I think I didn't make it. The water was a bit cold, and my legs got all scratched, but my bike was okay. 
I lost this conker I was keeping in my pocket, though. I only realised ages later. I'm still really annoyed about that. Anyway, I didn't want to get straight back on my bike because my legs and my hands were kind of shaky, so I pushed my bike up to the other side of the stream. There was this big tent thing in the middle of the field. It was weird because I hadn't seen that before, but I guess I was just concentrating really hard on the stream. It was kind of orange, but like really faded, so it mostly just looked brown, like leaves right at the end of autumn. It looked boring, but the rest of the field looked more boring, so I decided to go inside. The tent flap, that, that's what you call like the front door of a tent, the flap was open and sort of flapping. There was mould on all the canvas, which made it look even browner. I couldn't see right away, because there wasn't much light, and my pupils had to get bigger to let more in, and that always takes a couple of seconds. The tent was a, a big circle, and round the sides there were loads of benches in steps, like you get in old football grounds. Most of them were broken, and the metal was really rusty, but not like brown rust, like red rust. It was like the benches had been bleeding, and then the, all the blood had dried. That was pretty cool. Way in the back, there was this big thing I couldn't really see, but it looked like it could be a cannon, so I wanted to go and see if it was. I was going over when a really bright light came on, and I had to shut my eyes. When I opened them, the light was just on me, in a, in a circle around me. It made everything outside it look really dark. Then another light came on opposite me, and I realised I wasn't the only person in the tent. There was a man, and at first I thought he was really tall, but he was actually just standing on something big that I couldn't see. He had a hat on, one of those tall hats people wear on telly when it's some boring show about the Victorians. Except it was really, really bright red. So was his coat, but that didn't look like it was Victorian because it was too shiny and I don't know if the Victorians had discovered sequins yet. He had a twirly, pointy moustache, the same as the man who works in the coffee shop Mum Likes. It didn't look silly on him though. Or it did, but that seemed to be the point. I was thinking that I should probably go because this was probably something like that Stranger Danger stuff my teacher was talking about. But then this music started up and a whole bunch more lights came on, but these ones were coloured and they made loads of puddles of red and blue all over the ground and it was really cool. That's when I saw the man was standing on a massive ball. He put his arms out and started walking backwards, which made the ball roll forwards. He went on this big circle around me through all of the lights and it looked really easy, but I bet it was really difficult. He grabbed his hat, I guess it was so it wouldn't fall off, and he jumped off the ball, but he did a backflip and landed facing away from me. But as soon as his feet touched the ground, he spun around and bowed to me. That was weird, but I figured it would be rude of me not to bow back. Like, it's rude if you do that in Japan. So I bowed to him. I was just about to ask him who he was when there was this massive noise behind me. I know now that it was the lion, but then I thought it was a motorbike or something. I turned around and there was this huge blur of gold running at me. I only had time to blink once, and then it was leaping over my head. I nearly fell backwards because I was trying to keep looking at it, but I forgot I could turn around for a second. Then I remembered and turned around. The lion, this is when I realised that the gold blur was a lion, was growling at the man with the hat. It was hunkered down close to the ground, and I knew that meant that it was ready to attack because David Attenborough did a TV show on lions once. The man had got a chair from somewhere, and he was holding it out at the lion. I don't know what he was trying to do with it, because there's no way you could stop a lion with a chair. But the lion did back off a bit, so maybe it was a special chair? The man looked away from the lion, which I also thought was pretty daft, 
and he winked at me. Then he threw me his hat. I tried to catch it, but I'm really bad at catching things, so I didn't. But somehow it just landed on my head anyway. It was way too big, so it went right down over my eyes, and I couldn't see. I lifted it up and saw that now the lion was sitting on the chair, which seemed really unlikely, but that's what it was doing. The man was standing really close to it, and he made this gesture, and the lion opened its mouth really, really wide. The lion's teeth were white, and its gums were pink, and the man must have been a bit wrong in his head because he put his head in the lion's mouth. The man was looking at me the whole time. His teeth were white, and his gums were pink, and his smile was the biggest I've ever seen. But I think my smile was bigger. The man kept smiling, and he took his head out of the lion's mouth. He bowed again, and I felt like I needed to clap, so I started, but that made the hat fall over my eyes again. I kept clapping anyway. My hands started to hurt, so I stopped and took the hat off. The chair was still there, but the lion and the man were gone. I felt weird being on my own in the tent all of a sudden, so I left the hat on the chair and I went to get my bike. It started raining while I was cycling home, which meant I had an excuse for why I was a bit wet and muddy, so mum didn't find out that I wasn't at Cassie's, but I did get in trouble for going out without a coat. Sometimes I wish I'd brought the hat back with me, but it wasn't mine, so that wouldn't have been right. Anyway, I think it belongs in that tent. Maybe someone else can find it then. Oh, that was magic. <laughs> Thank you. I like Jamie. I hope we get to meet him again sometime. He's a good kid. He's a bit of a handful, but, you know, his heart's in the right place. <laughs> Would you ever put your head in a lion? No, probably not. Would you ever stick your head in a pig? <laughs> Go stick your head in a pig. Go stick your head in a pig. <laughs> Join us next time when you'll be felled by our dazzling prose. Oh, I don't know how much longer I can put up with these puns, you know. Goodbye. Goodbye. <laughs> <laughs>